step one, step two uh, is really about, you know, when we all think about being children, ice cream, the ice cream truck, those moments of joy, you know, making it better, making, you know, if, if a kid's crying, you give him an ice cream, he's happy. It really, to me, became the perfect catalyst or, or vehicle for, for doing good in the world. Welcome to the Impact Multiplier CEO podcast. I'm Richard Metcalf, founder of X Quadrant, and my mission is to help the world's top CEOs and entrepreneurs shift from incremental to exponential progress and create a huge positive impact on our world. Now, that requires you to reinvent yourself and transform your business. So, if you're ready to play a bigger game than ever before, I invite you to join us and become an Impact Multiplier CEO. In this episode, I speak with James Bocher, who is the chief executive of Righteous Gelato, a leading Canadian, basically, ice cream company. Uh, although he probably wouldn't me to use the word ice cream because gelato actually is a higher quality, lower sugar version of, of ice cream. Um, James has built his business out as a real force for good. He's really focused on corporate culture. In fact, he describes himself as chief empowerment officer because he's so focused on creating a gem of a culture where employees are truly valued. And in this episode, we dive in to how do you do that without creating an entitlement mentality? How do you value employees without them leaning back and exploiting it in certain ways? Uh, we then dive into how he runs his one-to-one -one meetings, the questions he asks to create a coaching culture rather than perhaps as many leaders can do, almost a kind of a micromanaging and a, a culture that actually disempowers people. So if you're struggling to get the best out of your people, if you want them to lean in a bit more, really listen in to his questions, because I think you'll find a couple of gems in there for you. So this is a great conversation uh, with James on empowering leadership. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. Hi, James, and welcome to the show. Hey, Richard. Thanks for having me. So this is going to be fun. I know that over the last 14 years, you've built up a Righteous Gelato. Uh, along the way, you've picked up a string of awards. You, uh, you had a 40 Under 40 award. Entrepreneur of the Year, Canada's Most Admired Corporate Cultures. You recently got the Real Leaders uh, Impact Award as well. And so I know that you, you are somebody who, wants to, who sees business as a force for good. And so I suppose my opening question is, you know, if you want to make a positive impact in the world, like why ice cream? I mean, really, is that? Sure. Why start there? Yeah, gelato, ice cream, potato, potato, we'd say in Canada. But um, yeah, I think uh, there's two, two, maybe three parts to that. One is uh, I always say gelato chose me. So um, I took over a very small scoop shop that is, you know, no longer. Um, but it, that's sort of where this started. Um, I was doing freelance design in my younger days and they were a client. And uh, I found this magic around being in the store and this theater of it being made and, and just the energy of community that really sort of was the catalyst for my this decision to, you know, forge ahead with taking over this, this ice cream shop, quote unquote, the, the ironic part is in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, where I live. Um, it's winter for like six months of the year. So I wasn't, wasn't very bright in my mid twenties to do that. But uh, lo and behold, you know, the business has changed and we're now in, in grocery stores is sort of our main business. So that's sort of Step one, step two uh, is really about, you know, when we all think about being children, 
ice cream, the ice cream truck, those moments of joy, you know, making it better, making, you know, if, if a kid's crying, you give him an ice cream, he's happy. It really, to me, became the perfect catalyst or, or vehicle for, for doing good in the world. And then third is, I really believe that inherently change in the world is very rarely brought upon by, by governments. It's generally individuals that are passionate about something or uh, businesses that decide that they're going to operate with that type of integrity, like Patagonia, uh, for example, or perhaps Ben and Jerry's, all these wonderful companies that really sort of, you know, carved a path and led the way in saying, you know, we don't have to be a capitalist empire. Um, we can be sustainable in a lot of ways and, and, and do a lot of good in the world. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it's nice. I can picture it as this little gem of a business, right? Where you're tracing a high quality product and doing it well. I suppose what's interesting to me is I could imagine having another interview on this podcast with somebody says, I'm here, I'm on a mission, you know, for like healthy eating. We've got to get rid of all these ice creams, this chocolate. That's the good I want to do in the world is, uh, you know, is kind of stop putting people putting sugar in their bodies and this kind of stuff. So I'm kind of getting curious uh, how you kind of think about that. You've probably come across that yourself in this journey. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, it's an interesting one. I think like uh, all things, including, uh, you know, sugar or wine or anything you, you, you ingest, even probably spinach at some point, it's really, you know, it's really about everything in moderation. And that's the great thing about our product is that, you know, it's so delicious that you, you only need a little bit to enjoy it. So you're not, you know, mowing down on, on a full pint. Some people do because it's so delicious. Um, but also, you know, our product has less sugar than, than a lot of other products based on our formulations. And um, yeah, I mean, I think if we got too caught up in that, we wouldn't have the opportunity to do as much good. So when you sort of narrow the niche too much, then you really don't expand yourself to, to that. So I think at the end of the day, we talk about it all the time as a team. We'll offer no sugar added products and so on and so forth. But sugar is, unfortunately, I think in a way, very delicious, and um, and we're okay to have some. You know, we're not. It's not. We're we're not opposed to having uh, a little bit in our diet. Yeah, I'm just provoking you, really, right? I mean, I I like it. I like it. I live in France. Come on, I'm stuffing myself with cheese and sugar and ice cream. I'm a big fan of sugar. <laughs> uh, you know, just don't don't eat lots of it. There's lots of sugars not to eat. Uh, we use organic cane sugar in our products. So we're, you know, the best of the best, but, um, but yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so I know you have a phrase, which is business is not business. What's that about? Yeah. Business is, is, uh, is not business. I think too often the, the phrase when difficult decisions are being made by leaders, um, you're in a situation where it's like, uh, it's just business or we have to do you know, what the business needs. And I think early on in my life, my grandmother had a catering company and um, business is people, you know, every part of it is people. And I think, you know, it's the, the customers or fans that you serve, they're people, um, the suppliers you work with, they're all people, they provide you something, but they're, they're people as well. And they should be treated with dignity and respect. The people that you employ, especially they're, they're humans that have decided I could choose any job in the world. And really, we live in an age where you can do anything. I'm always fascinated by, you know, the influencer career now. It's, it's a real thing. People can go and get free stuff and get paid to talk about it online in a very authentic way. And so the, the reality of the, the business part of it is that 
you know, we're always interacting with people. And so if we make decisions with that type of um, approach and, and um, inherent responsibility that we're dealing with people, uh, I, think, I think it'll serve us really well. Someone said something that was really interesting to me the other day. They said, when a salesman sells a company something, so a supplier will say, and he does it because he's got to meet his targets, but he knows it's not the right solution for somebody or really won't do what they need. He's putting that other person that sort of signed off on it, their career in jeopardy. And they don't really realize that, you know? So if there's a piece of equipment that's procured, this happens in my business and my team in operations does it, you know, we run a very, you know, holistic company. So no one's losing their job over anything. But a lot of companies, if someone made a mistake because a salesman sold that, that person's career is in jeopardy and all they were trying to do is make the number and they weren't really thinking about all the downstream effects and all the people, not the business part of it. So, Yeah, that's a great example. Um, yeah, very good example. When I looked at your website earlier on, I noticed, yeah, you put the whole thing about people right on the front, right? Uh, it says like, uh, whatever it says, like whatever it says, like our people make our gelato is not the other way around, or words to this effect, um, which is it's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. We just happen to make gelato, is what we say. We just happen to make gelato. It's like if we made staplers or picture frames, I don't know. I'll pick a bunch of random products to make. We'd still have a great company. They would be world class. They'd have the best service. They would stand up to what you expected them to do, and. Uh, along the way, we make great decisions on how we procure the supplies and and uh, have a lot of fun with it. So yeah, I love it. So I guess my question for you is, how do you put people first and like your employees first and avoid the sense of entitlement? Because I've seen you know other leaders really struggle with this, right? They provide great environments, they provide great benefits, and they it's almost like the more we give them, the more they seem to want, right? Like they're never satisfied. In fact. And that by almost feeding the monster. Um, so I'm kind of curious because it sounds like you've, I suspect you've had a good balance. What, what have you found? Yeah. Richard, I would imagine that you were, you were raised pretty well. Am I correct? I would hope so. <laughs> I would hope so. And do you have children? I do. Okay. And do you feel like you're raising them pretty good? You know, no sense of entitlement. Yeah. Well, I think they've, they've just happened to, I've just happened to be very, very lucky with my children. They seem to be raising themselves. <laughs> you think it's luck? I like that. Well, I don't tell them that, obviously. Secretly, I just tell them I'm, I'm the perfect dad and they owe it all to me. You're going to listen to this and say, we really like that ice cream guy, <laughs> James from Canada. Um, what, what, I'm, what I'm highlighting is that uh, culturally, sort of we, what we... What we tolerate is, you know, really what comes of, of, of our, our um, ecosystem. So when I look at a corporate culture, there's, there's so many starting points where it can go awry to your point. So if your hiring practice doesn't sort of vet that early on in it, so you're just looking for top talent, you don't care if they're, you know, what we call, you know, a disagreeable giver. Adam Grant came up with that. Our sorry, disagreeable taker. Um, if you're in a situation where, Along the way, you're not sort of re, um, recorrecting the ship when things are going awry in terms of culture. I think, I think it really starts so early on in the culture. And I think a culture is, is often easily described as it's what goes on when no one is looking. So it's like a Henry Ford quote, you know, quality means doing it right when no one's looking. That's on the wall at Righteous. But 
Um, the reality is, is that, you know, if, if someone were to walk in there and there's no bosses there and whatever, what would they see if they were just, you know, a, a ghost and, and they saw how people were cleaning or how they were treating one another or all those things. And I think we do an amazing job early on in the process, finding great people, making them feel like they are, they are so, they have such deep belongings. So we do all these onboarding things of where they have to ask people in the company fun facts. And there's a lot of connection to, to leadership and including me where every team member that ever gets hired sits down for founder coffee and we just connect. I ask them questions about them. They ask me about the, you know, why did you, why did you choose gelato and, and what's your favorite flavor? So some good questions. But really, I think to your, your point about leaders struggling with it, it's, it's like if, you, if your kids were like always misbehaving and then you came along and you said, you know what? I think if I give them a bunch of ice cream, they're going to behave better. You know, it's like the inverse. Like they, the, the starting point has to be teaching great behaviors, saying what you tolerate, what you expect, treating people like I always say, treat them like adults or treat them like people. And then anytime it goes awry where there's uh, something that goes wrong, you have a really clear conversation, you know, clear is kind. That's a Brene Brown thing. It's really important to have those conversations. So we have a thing, unlimited vacation. After one year, every team member gets this. It's different sometimes for manufacturing teams, um, but with our administration team. And someone said, how do you not have the team abuse that? And I say, uh, well, they, they don't. And they're like, well, what if they do? I was like, well, they don't. I, I don't know what you want me to say. And what I realized is that it's, it's a bit of a deep care for one another within the organization. Patrick Lencioni is one of my favorite authors, and he talks about this. You know, uh, accountability is really not to the, the leader. It's to the rest of the team. And when the rest of the team has an innate, deep sense of accountability for one another, they won't do that because they don't want to let one another down. They don't want to fail one another. And so our organization operates. It's like, this is how we do it. This is the culture, like your parents raised you and you raise your children. This is how we do things. We're polite. We say, thank you. You know, we put our knife and fork this way. We don't, you know, swear at adults, you know, all the things you taught your kids, I'm sure. And when people come into the organization, they generally have a good sense. I, I, I always, always say, People are inherently good. Do not, do not make rules and regulations for the one person that screwed it up once upon a time because then you're in it for everybody. And I think, you know, in a bit of, again, a bit of a, you know, an ecosystem of, of our team, that's really the mentality is that, you know, one person doesn't want to ruin it for the rest of them. So. so have you had examples where you've had to have tough conversations to really enforce those standards? I mean, uh, tough conversations are probably, I look at them different than probably a lot of leaders. I think a lot of skills, especially uh, the ability to have tough conversations are like muscles. And so you have to flex them often. And then they sort of build up this resiliency. Resiliency is another one. You've got to flex a muscle, which is why we've survived sort of our, our history, we'll say. But the, uh, the reality is, is that when you have them very naturally, it's way easier. And people respect you so much when they know where they stand, you know, like, I heard a lesson early on in my leadership, which was, do you want to be liked or respected? And I thought about it. And, you know, as a young, young man, I, um, I didn't have a lot of friends and I struggled with sort of getting bullied. So my natural sort of tendency is to, to want to be liked. And what I realized is that if you are respected 
and you treat people really well, like, like you would want to be treated, they will like you way more because they respect you. They're not going to be the person that likes you and sort of takes advantage of you. And so I think that the tough conversations that have happened over time are, you know, we really, you know, the team, you know, the team's addressed that we really need to work through this problem. Can we work together? I always say, how can I help? That's literally my mechanism of discipline. Like what, what am I missing in this equation um, or my leadership uh, or my guidance that, that I could help you with? Regardless of, you know, if they're, you know, a team member that just joined us or they're a senior leader. And, and I think that really has served me well. We have a couple things going on in the business right now that are requiring some of those tough conversations. And what I am, I'm so amazed by is that the leaders that lead the people that are having some challenges are saying things the way that I would see them if at the same or if not better. And so there's been this, this cultural adoption of, I'm going to be honest with this person. I'm going to be clear about it. I'm going to say why, you know, like, what are we missing here and confront the issue so that we can resolve it. Because if we sort of just let it exist, then, you know, then it's just going to continue to happen. It's like they expect what you tolerate seeing, right? So a lot of isms I'm sharing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one thing that's coming, to, well, coming to my mind is, yeah, it's why well, it's first of all the, yeah, you don't shy away from that uh, despite wanting that people first culture. It doesn't mean it's a, soft you know completely soft right because you you want to have those conversations but it's about establishing those uh, expectations and then but then having a coaching mindset so i wanted to come on to that because you talk, started to talk about asking questions right how can i help what am i missing and i know that you said that i think one of your superpowers might be asking questions to help point out the things that no one else sees so i'm wondering kind of how do you do that and like when do you use that skill like when when does that come come out yeah uh Early on in my leadership, because of the urgency of survival, we'll almost say, I would solve a lot of problems on others' behalf. So something would go awry and I would just say, hey, I can get that done. And two things happen as a leader. One, you're, you feel valuable. This is, I would say, the, the general trait of why that happens. It's like you feel like you're valuable, like you did something, you're important. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's adding too much value normally. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Leadership is very much about the neurons in your brain and other jobs are generally about the outcome that you built. Right. So I did this here. Is it, I'm a, I would say like trades is the greatest career ever because you like, see you frame homes. It's like there was a piece of land and now there's a home. Look, I'm accomplished, you know, whereas leaders, it's like, we don't really know where we're at. So we might grab on to solving things. And so I learned early on that that, you know, was not going to serve me well in terms of growing the business and, and teaching other people and learning myself also. I think that's a big thing that's uh, underrated by leaders is the more that you ask good questions, the more you learn. And so over my, my tenure in, in the organization, realizing the capacity and capability and generally the intelligence of, of the people I get to work with, they would know an answer that was probably better than the answer I thought of in the moment. And so asking good questions actually created a better outcome. And it takes discipline. Uh, it takes curiosity is a big sort of uh, conversation within our organization. Even in Slack, we've got a curious emoji that we created 
and then allowing people to leverage their own superpowers. So if they're a systems thinker or a cal calibrator or an empath, you know, what, what are the things they can bring to the table while you're trying to solve issues within the organization? Because if you just hire a bunch of people and sort of program them to do what you want, I don't think you're ever really going to get your, your full potential in the business, but also they won't realize their full potential. And that's really where the magic happens. So how, what would you be your mini masterclass or mini guide on uh, what, kind of the, what kind of questions will bring that, draw that out of people? So like, to think about that, you're going through, you know, someone's asked, talking about something that perhaps they're asking you to solve the problem for them. Where would you, what would be your go-to? Well, I'll give you a few that are coming up here uh, after this call. So on uh, the first Wednesday of the month, I have my one-on-ones with my direct reports. So they have 90 minutes and it's really their, it's their agenda. And uh, first question is uh, an EO thing, which is like name and number or an word and number. And the idea is, you know, you're just sharing where you're at. So if you've had like a, you know, a tough week or whatever, you, we sort of calibrate to that. So I think understanding where people are at. So I would say first question I would ever, ever ask somebody is how, like, how are you doing? And the name and number thing gives you sort of two points for them to be honest. Cause if I'm like, Richard, how are you doing? You're like, ah, oh, James, great. I'm just glad to see you. But like an hour ago, someone hit your car in your, in their front of your house. Like you didn't, you weren't honest about that. So if I say word and number, you might say seven and frustrated. And I'll be like, what happened? And then you'd share. So expand. Uh, the next one is uh, in one-on-ones, which I think is the greatest question I've ever learned to use. And this is an Andy Grove thing is, uh, what's the best use of our time today? So I can run through a bunch of things and we can talk about your KPIs and, and we use an OGSM model. So we can talk about where you're at on your goals. But if you've got something that's just burning inside of you, and we don't talk, we don't address that really early on in the conversation. Oh man, we're going to like spend a lot of time just wasting time. And at the end, you're going to say, I got this problem I got to deal with and we don't have enough time. So what's the best use of our time today is a big one. I hope you're enjoying this conversation. This is just a quick interlude to introduce you to two transformative programs that we run. The first is Rivendell, my exclusive group of top CEOs who are committed to transforming themselves, their businesses, and the world. It's an incredible peer group and a deep coaching experience that will push you to new heights, no matter how successful you've already been. The second is Impact Accelerator, a coaching program for executives who are ready to make a big leap forward in their own leadership. It's regularly described as life-changing and no other program provides such personal strategic clarity, a measurable shift in stakeholder perceptions and a world-class leadership development environment. Find out about both of these programs at xquadrant.com slash services. Now back to the conversation. Can I actually just weigh in there? Um, yeah, please. I, I love it. I often ask my own, you know, my CEO, entrepreneur, coaching clients when I'm working with them, uh, we're setting big goals and things, but I, I would generally ask them, you know, uh, what's the most, valuable conversation we can possibly have which is basically the same thing the nuance though is actually sometimes the most valuable conversation we need to have is one or two clicks deeper than what they can say so uh, for me it's a great initial question but i would never kind of take it as as, as read but kind of probe a little bit 
And I like that. I think the more you give people uh, preparation too. So like you, you say, say you were coaching me and you gave me that question. Hey, on Wednesday, we're going to meet. And I'm going to ask you this question. I would now have time to say, what is that? You know, whereas if you ask me sort of on the spot, I might be like, ah, I don't like I would come up with an answer because that's I'm, I have to come up with answers sometimes. But I think that that's where you get a couple of clicks deep. It's deep. Uh, it's like five whys, right? It's like, you know, why did this happen? But really, why did it happen? And it's, you know, deductive reasoning and problem solving. I think Jeff Bezos was very famous for that within Amazon. But um, a couple other ones I like to ask um, is what am I missing? So say there's a problem. This will happen in like operations or supply chain often. Something's not going the way it should. And I'm like, this I can see the answer. I know the answer. And instead of blurring out the answer, because I might not know it, I have an assumption around the answer. I say, what am I missing? And they'd be like, well, what do you mean? And I was like, well, I, I, there's clearly something here that is missing. And so then we talk through perhaps some of the um, details that got missed in, in whatever we're trying to solve. So what am I missing is a good question. So just to be clear, you say what well, I'm missing, even if you feel you aren't missing anything. Is that what you're saying? You feel you know the answer. But you say, what are you missing in terms of getting them to think, think about what they're missing? So imagine, uh, I'm just going to use an example. Imagine I said, send me one of those books behind you. Looks like a cool book. Send me one of those books. Oh, James, you know, it's going to take so long, like blah, blah, blah. And I'm over here and you're over there. And I'm like, you just put it in the mail, dude. Like, just you just put it in the mail. Be a little extra, it, and I'll get it. I promise. Like, um, it's it's a miracle, but it, I'll get it. And then, so then, I, instead of telling you that, I would just say, "What? Am, like, what am I missing?" And then imagine what you really were going to tell me that you didn't tell me was, "This is the last copy of the book I have. I can't send it to you." So you over-explained something to sort of camouflage what was really going on, but I didn't know that. Or I'm like, just put it in the mail. Like, that's that's the cheap answer, right? So. I say that a lot too. I say that a lot too. Whether I'm I'm coaching someone in my business or mentoring outside, I say uh, uh, this advice is only as valuable as you paid for it, which is zero dollars. So take it, take it for that amount. Because um, I think too often uh, people with experience, quote unquote, leaders are giving a lot of feedback and not realizing the consequence of it. So. Again, say I told you your book cover should be blue and you thought I was the greatest person in the world, the best book cover person in the world, you would change it to blue. But what the hell do I know? Like, I don't know who your demographic is. I don't know anything about your book. And I think that's uh, a sad thing I see often is that someone sees somebody exalted in power. It happens in parenting for sure. But it's like, you know, the, the answer is just a off the cuff thing and people take it as, you know, gospel, we'll say in a way. So, yeah, that's great. So we've got word and number. What's the best use of our time? What am I missing? Anything else you wanted to add before we wrap up this little section on, uh, on. Yeah, I like it. And I, I would say, say, say the last one, which I shared, uh, uh, shared earlier was just, you know, asking people how you can help. I think that, uh, I heard a CEO a while back, sorry, a COO a while back say, the day I realized that my job was to help people solve problems, my job was so freeing. So he used to get so frustrated because there's always problems, right? <laughs> In a business, that's, that's what we do. We create more problems. 
and uh, and he said, the moment I realized that my job was to do that, that the day no problems exist is the day I lose my job. I realized, you know, saying, how can I help as a leader is one of the greatest gifts you can give yourself, first of all, because you're now solving the problem, not talking about the problem. Um, but you're also showing how much you care about your team. Yeah, that's great. Let me just dive deep into that one a little bit. What? How do you avoid in that situation something which I do see sometimes happen, which is that the leader ends up taking away many more actions than the staff member, right? In other words, like, how can I help you? Well, you can help me by like giving me a much better strategy, and also I need more, you know, resources. And can you talk to marketing because they're really lousy right now? And you know, and actually, could you mind, you know, just doing this deliverable for me? Because you know, blah blah blah, you know. So, <laughs> Um, exaggerating, but there can be a case where that kind of servant-hearted leadership ends up kind of the tables get turned almost. Have you ever have you ever experienced that or, or felt that tension? Yeah, I don't. Just <laughs> yeah. Two two funny things I want to point out, Richard. You're bringing up all these uh, like uh, CEO night CEO nightmares, I would say, um, and a lot of us live them at different. Uh, I should, I should do a TV series, CEO Nightmares. I should do that. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Just CEOs waking up in the middle of the night. And then the other part of it is, like I said before, is that, um, you know, whatever challenges we encounter as leaders, it's often cultural. And it comes back to sort of what we've already sort of, what the understanding is going into it or maybe the culture they served under in their last business. I see that a lot where people come in and they have expectations good or bad. Um, and you just got to work through them. But what I what I would say to that one, and this is going to be funny, my team will really enjoy listening to this one. But uh, I say, give give me something to say yes to. So say, Richard, same thing you said, I need, I need this, that, and the other thing. I would say, give me something to say yes to. Because you might tell me that you need X amount of dollars for something. Right now we're talking about, you know, influencer strategy or something like that. And I just say, well, like how much and how do we want to use it? And what's our best use of that? Because too often, I think people are limiting their problem solving skills by saying something's not available. So budgets generally constrain things, right? We can't do that. And again, back to asking why is once you get a few layers down, you've, you sort of discover all the answers within the um, reasons we can't. And I love that. I love when people, you see their eyes light up because they're like, well, if we had $10,000, I could do this, blah, 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 blah. And they sort of give me something to say yes to. I say, cool, we'll take $10,000 out of this budget and move it to that. You just gave me something to say yes to. And then I'm like, oh, sh shoot, that's all I you know, had to do. So I think, again, we've hired, this is a, a, a recent aha moment, but we've, we've hired people to do a job and there's sort of this fine line where we think that they know everything they should know and they should just come in. They should be experts, right? But it's not like framing a house or painting a house. You know, jobs that are sort of A to B, they're pretty clear. When you involve strategy, there's so much creative thinking and, and a different approach that has to happen. And I think that when you start to unleash the problem-solving creative thinking of people, they're, like I said, they're already an expert in that discipline. They're not, they're not perfect. They're not the best in the world and know everything. But once you sort of 
just pull on those strings, that's where you get to that point. So I think that, again, being in a position where as a, as a leader, you know, in a one-on-one, that if there is a, uh, an action item, it's really about someone coming back to, for you to uh, sign off on, I call it. So it's like Seth Godin said this one time, he's like, don't bring me an empty bingo square sheet. Bring me it with two numbers not filled in and ask me how to fill those in. And so it's, you know, when the complexity is big and you are a senior leader or a CEO and you're trying to solve all the things, you need somebody to come with like, I can't get this to connect to this and you can help them do that. And um, they have to do most of the work though. 98% there we say so. Yes. Yeah. Love it. Thank you. Give me something to say yes to. I love that. Uh, it's a great. It's a great line. So thank you for this. This has been a great, literally a mini masterclass uh, for, for any leader, really, and thinking about, yeah, how do I adopt more of a coaching question-based mindset uh, in most one-to-ones, which come up for so many of us, right, uh, so often. We're kind of probably drawing to the end of our time here, James, but I'd love to ask really one of my favorite questions, which is, as you continue to grow the business and actually multiply your impact in the world, um, what what's the stretch for you? So where might you need to reinvent yourself to create a new level of impact that's not even on the radar today? What comes up when I say that? Yeah, I would say the 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 biggest thing is that I am my team would tell you that I am obsessed with the tiniest of details and I have to fly at fifty thousand feet. And as we've grown the organization, I've done a good job of helping people understand how important those little details are. But sometimes again, back to that, seeing what no one else sees or putting priority on it, even, you know, how we do anything is how we do everything is a saying. And I, I, I live, I live a lot um, of my life that way. And I think the big stretch for me, as we go, you know, we're entering the US market, you know, we hope one day to be, you know, across the pond, as they would say, and we've done a good job of conquering Canada, is being able to uh, really invest and institute a way of thinking within senior leaders that does that minutia and 50,000 feet the way I'm doing it today. And that requires me to step away from that. And, and that's, um, that's a really hard, really hard thing to do because the biggest thing for me, you know, I've, I have three responsibilities in the organization, uh, culture, capital, and connection. And so I've got to be the person that is the most connected to all the people we serve or work with, and most importantly, the team. Um, I've got to make sure that the culture in my job title, as you would know, is custodian of culture and chief empowerment officer. So uh, I say that because the culture is what it is today. We've built it. I just have to show up with a mop bucket sometimes and mop it up when when they mess it up. But uh and, and empower people to do great things. I think CEO should be chief empowerment officer for every leader, but uh, that's for another day. And then capitalize the organization. And it's really hard to focus on making sure that the business is capitalized for the growth we want if I'm stuck in the details. And so that's the big stretch is relinquishing a little bit of that, but having stewards or other custodians of those minute details um, so that I can make sure that those big things continue to happen. Because I think that Righteous, for what we've done and what we represent and who we are and what we built, uh, really has the opportunity to to make some big waves in the world like the Patagonias 
and the Ben and Jerry's and, um, and we want to do that. Our, our vision is to be the most, um, loved, inspired, uh, frozen dessert company in the world. And, and I think, um, that's a big stretch and I'm excited for it is what I would say. James, that's beautiful. Um, yeah, being a custodian of being the custodian of culture, right? It works when you're kind of at the smaller end. And then as you start to scale, uh, do, you know, you need to have seeding it so that it, it, say it, it grows and, and, uh, and lives when you're not present, especially when you have to be in different international locations, when you can't be there to embody it every single day. I see that a lot. Um, so perhaps one distinction I'll, I'll leave you with um, is around company culture and leadership culture. And you might think they're the same, but they don't necess- they're not necessarily the same because company culture is more like what the employees experience and you know, whether you have what, you know, how the overall feel, but actually they're kind of like the, well, the leadership reflexes that you need in order to create that culture is another thing that you, I see, often see my clients need to scale in the business and build that same leadership operating system, if you like, um, so that when you're not there, other people are keeping the standards where they need to be and understand the importance of that. You, you made me think of something that's really powerful and, and I think it's a great, another great uh, question. Repeat it back to me. So I think that, you know, what you just said to me that I, you know, mentally took note of was if I were to ask my senior leaders what that culture is that I represent within our operating system as leaders, could they say it back to me and then deliver on that? And I think that's a really great uh, thing for me to take away from my conversations this afternoon. So thank you. Yeah, beautiful. So James, it's been um, a lot of fun. I've loved kind of sparring with you on, uh, you know, on, on the gelato business as a whole, um, <clears throat> diving into uh, great insights, you know, around accountability, right? That it's not just to the leader, but it's actually to, you know, your colleagues or your stakeholders, the team part of um, not making rules for the for the one person that uh you know is is abusing the system <laughs> or whatever and then asking these questions in order to learn more in order to empower you know and giving some really practical examples of, of where you go there uh, and then yeah being a bit open about yeah well how how are you going to be able to relinquish let go of some of that uh of some of that control in order almost to control it at a, at a higher level and make sure the standards are there as you scale to the US, hopefully to Europe and beyond. So it's been a great conversation. So James, if people want to find out more about you or about the business, you know, where should they go? Yeah, righteousgelato.com and then Righteous Gelato on any social feed. We sort of lean into Instagram and TikTok just based on the brand. And then on LinkedIn, just my name, James Bocher. And uh, if you search Righteous, it'll come up too. But um, yeah, reach out. I'd love to Love to chat and meet some new people. And if you've got any curious questions uh, about culture or leadership, happy to happy to say uh, this advice is only as good as you paid for it, which is zero dollars, and uh, maybe share something back. So, I appreciate the opportunity, Richard. Thank you very much. Thank you, James. Well, that's a wrap. If you received value from this conversation, please do leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. We deeply appreciate it. And if you'd like to check out the show notes from this episode, head to xquadrant.com slash podcast, where you'll find all the details. Now, finally, when you're in top leadership, who supports and challenges you at a deep level? 
to help you multiply your impact. Discover more about the different ways we can support you at xquadrant.com.